This is the second part of a two-part podcast discussion with Jeffrey Canny, the CEO of National Real Estate Advisors, talking about a wide range of changes and technological shifts that are occurring right now because of climate change and our response to climate change that create great opportunity for the future. And in this episode, we'll be talking about heliports. We'll be talking about transportation networks and infrastructure, how our cities are spreading out, potentially, and how the city centers and how we use them are changing. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. I think this is fascinating, and I feel like I've just sat down and, you know, I, I, it's like you seem to be related to Stuart Brand as you talk. I mean, they're just this idea of how things are evolving and where they're going. But let's bring it back a little bit to real estate. And, you know, obviously you were investing with these things in mind. How do you think what, – what are some key things for people to think about as they're thinking about investing in office buildings and in residential buildings and retail, what have you, um, in – the U.S. right now. How should we be thinking about 10 years from now? Well, I, I'll give you an example, I think, that illustrates some of the problems that there'll be many, many problems that have to be conquered uh, that people don't anticipate. Um, and here's an example. I happen to have a friend whose son works for a company that's developing heliports for electric helicopters, taxi services. So they effectively going around the world. They've identified the cities they want to be in. They're very well capitalized. Uh, and their first heliports in uh, Miami, well, first one was in London, and they have one in somewhere in the Middle East, and now they have one in Miami. Anyway, he called me one day to ask me, um, hey, do you have any buildings you're building that we could put a heliport on? And in particular, they knew about a project of ours in downtown Los Angeles, and they were interested in, in that site uh, for a bunch of reasons. Um, anyway, I, uh, we were talking through, and I said, so you know, what do you need to make this work? And he gave me the dimensions and the size, and, and, and oh, yeah, they need two to four megawatts of power because these helicopters, they need to recharge them in 15 or 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, do you have any idea how expensive it is uh, if you can even get two to four megawatts of power, how expensive it is to take it up a 50-story building? Um, and and can, you, can you even imagine getting it? Um, anyway, he had never really thought about that. Uh, he was, he's a younger fellow, yeah. uh, but they're thinking about it now. And uh, it's an interesting, you know, they've got, a, they've got a great idea that will change the way people can go from, in this case, in, in Los Angeles. Everybody knows how hard it is getting where in Los Angeles. Right. If you could leave San Diego or even be 15 miles away in, in uh, Santa Monica and had to go downtown and you could get in a taxi, and they're saying that they can do this for very little money hmm. uh, in terms of uh, cost per mile. Um, that that that's I think an example of that's a great technology there, um, and it's a great idea to get these heliports. But getting that in the built environment is very difficult. And we started thinking about it here in terms of some of our projects, like say in Boston, and we realized that uh, all almost all of our buildings have all kinds of stuff on the roof, yeah, uh, which makes it virtually impossible to do what to take a current building and retrofit it. Mm. So will you build new buildings today that 
try to try to clean up the roof or build it maybe an extra layer so you can have a heliport. I think we're a long way from that because economically, is it viable? I don't, it, you know. It, it's a good question, but when you think about it, like any form of transportation, you're creating a new location as soon as you have people going through a certain place, which creates you know higher value for whatever that asset is. So I can see how attractive it would be to try to figure out how the heck to get that much power up to the roof and how to clear all the stuff off of the roof. Well, uh, in our case, they didn't have to face that problem ultimately because they decided uh, there were the flight lines. They gave us a D on flight lines. Oh, um, all right. So they have this whole <laughs> matrix of decision-making about where, right. where they go. So, But anyway, that, that's an example of uh, you know, a challenge that I, I'm sure we're going to get there. But yeah. it's – you know, God bless these people who are making these investments uh, because it's not cheap and yeah. it's all coming on the come. And you got to be uh, have a long term perspective on the, uh, is this going to work or not. But it's certainly something to keep your eye on if you're making an investment in a major city in a downtown. Oh, for area. sure. Yeah. Um, it could have impact even on those that don't have the heliport. You know, do yeah. you want to be next to one? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Well, and you wonder. Um, one of the things I think all the new technologies, not just related to energy production. Uh, transportation, but you know, um, the internet and video conferencing, it it has the potential, and I think it will. It's spreading things out in a yeah. very significant way. And if you got to the point where you had this cheap geothermal or a really working fusion energy source, um, you could see a lot of people having the ability to own a second home or a third home. Uh, and so maybe they're in the city for a little while and then they're in their second home for another time and maybe they're in another country for a third time, which would ultimately result in the spreading out of civilization in a way I think would be a positive for mm -hmm. the, the, the world, assuming that the transportation is not CO2. Uh, Dependent, yeah. Yeah. And I think these the, the, this helicopter, these electric helicopters, is an example of someone you could now live. I mean, I, I have a home about 45 minutes from where I work. And I could get on my helicopter and be here in 10 minutes. For Sounds great. Yeah, it'd be fantastic. <laughs> uh, instead, I have to have a condo so I can get to right. work. Well, I, I mean, I think it's interesting, too. You, you, now you're, you're, you're talking to how, just like technologies, you mentioned air conditioning, which completely transformed uh, the landscape. It made the Sun Belt a possibility as an institutional market. Um, but also automobiles and how it changed what our cities look like. New York is still less dense than it was in 100 years ago. Uh, in great part because of the car. Everyone thinks it's too crowded there. And I'm like, you haven't seen anything. You weren't here in 1914. You know, it was really dense then. Um, so you see this as a all of these factors perhaps creating more of a spreading out. Does that mean that the that the, the dense urban core needs to be rethought or, or could be rethought going forward? Or does that mean it's just a different use? Well, I think people, people love activity and density to a certain point, yeah. right? There, there's a tipping point where it becomes a hassle. Um, I know this is off the subject, but our, our vision of downtowns, and this I think is not uncommon, uh, is that many, many office buildings downtown are going to be obsolete as we adjust to the new uh, remote working environment, um, which is real and demanded by any employee who yeah. is worth their salt. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think we're going to see downtowns become much more uh, office buildings next to uh, retail operations, next to apartment buildings. And there'll be a, a spreading out of, of density um, and uses. So in downtown D.C., where, where we are right now, 
typically, when I first moved to Washington several decades ago, uh, at six o'clock at night, downtown, huge area, you know, several square miles, basically empty. Yeah. Uh, really empty. There was not a single residential project uh, anywhere downtown. Um, and over time, that's changed. Uh, but it, it hasn't changed that much until COVID and until we started understanding that people don't need to come to the office all the time. Now in downtown D.C., there are enormous numbers of uh, probably 20, 25 office buildings that are in the process of converting to residential buildings. Uh, some of the most unlikely structures I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it, I think, is pie in the sky. But uh, the alternative for them is tear it down and right. just look at their land value. Uh so that's a huge change that is, I'm convinced, is going to spread much more quickly uh, because, you know, money's at stake. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a capitalist and uh, the money, the, the seeking profits and preserving value does result in some good, a lot of very good things. Well, I mean, it's adapt or die kind of thing. I mean, you have to. Look, we've done it. We've done it in this industry, even within our working lifetimes, when you think about how we redefined industrial urban core areas uh, successfully, I think, in the 80s and 90s, and how we kind of took spaces that people thought should be torn down and turned them into high-end residential and high-end office. Uh, we can do the same thing. Um, and it sounds like we're already doing it. I think we are already doing it. And if you remember, Gunnar, and this is really off the subject, but uh, when you were doing, when you were the, in charge of NAREM, Way back in 2003 or four, I, uh, I I've always let people work at home two days a week. Yeah, um, and that became a point of discussion at one of our meetings, and uh, everyone thought I was out of my mind. Yeah, uh, and the common refrain was, "Well, how do you know if they're doing any work?" And I said, well, "How do you know if they're doing any work when you're in the office?" <laughs> uh, and now, you know, when the co- when COVID hit, and we're really off the subject here. When COVID hit, yeah. Uh, we were prepared. We had been working remotely for 20 years. So uh, we were, it was a seamless change for us. We had the technology in place to do remote uh, video conferencing and people were used to working remotely. So now we're even more remote than we used to be. Um, But I think it's really relevant. Uh, You're worried that it's off subject, but I, I keep thinking this is precisely when change happens those firms that are already kind of looking forward and trying to figure out, well, what is it that I really need and how do I actually get things done? Or, you know, what, what does my life need to be? And you think about people who are thinking about where they live and how they live. Um, those questions are being forced. The answers are being forced right now by situation beyond our control. We didn't design COVID to happen. It just happened. But your firm and others that were more along that spectrum that were already thinking, okay, well, work from home a couple days a week. That's fine. You know, do that. Make sure you have the computer and you're ready to go. Uh, we're able to make that transition two years ago so much faster and so much more easier. It wasn't easy, obviously, for anyone. We were all dealing with full-time lockdowns, and that was difficult, but we learned so much from it. And I keep thinking with energy changes, with infrastructure changes, with these technological kind of uh, responses to this dead end that we find ourselves in with carbon, that um, those firms and those groups and those cities and those countries that are thinking already about what that future place is um, are going to have an easier time of it. And those that are simply saying, well, we'll go back to normal next week, it'll go back to normal, are going to be working at a disadvantage. Would, would you agree? Oh, yeah. It, it, we're not going back to so-called normal. We, we have a new 
a new way of living. And, and the reason it's going to stick is it makes sense, yeah. uh, particularly in an environment in our large urban environments. It makes sense. In Washington, the average commute here is an hour and a half uh, for most people who are making a mid-level salary because you have to live that far away from the core in order to find a place to, uh, to live. Um, and that means if you're commuting like that, you get to work, you're exhausted when you get here because it's very stressful. Yeah. Uh, then you got to face the stress of going home. Uh, you don't have time to be associated with your community, participate in community events, you know, be with your kids at the soccer games. It's always stress, stress, stress. And once people understood, I can't tell you how many people in my firm, even though they'd always been allowed to work two days at home, uh, how many said it was a life-changing experience for them to know that they didn't have to come in at all and they could be involved some more, some perhaps more than they wanted to be with their own families because they were all at home too. Uh, but it has, it, it's been life-changing and people don't want to go back to that. And I, I can give you an example of you know, how this impacts energy use. Um, so I, I live about 45 miles from here on the Chesapeake Bay and I built a house with geothermal energy. I charge my electric car there. Um, and now I come to work, you know, two days a week when I'm not traveling. Uh, if I were driving here every day, uh, from that location, paying today's gas prices, it would cost me uh, probably five to six hundred dollars a month uh, to pay for that gas, yeah. uh, plus the four hundred bucks for a parking space. All right, so I got there's a thousand dollars. My electric bill at home, because I have all LED lights everywhere and I have geothermal energy, even though I'm charging my car at home, I have, my bills are less than two hundred dollars. It's also a super insulated home. So you think about the difference in that cost over a year, um, that's, that's thousands and thousands of dollars and so much less CO2 going into the air because I get my power from a nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. you know, nobody knows where an electron goes, but the closest power plant to my house is, is a nuclear power plant. Right. So I like to think I get CO2-free energy and I use even less than that um, than most people do because of the geothermal. And that, that sort of thing is – that's happening, I think. Uh, that's much more slow because you're changing the built environment, which is it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot of time. But that's happening. Um, not fast enough to solve our current problem. But no. as we've talked about, there are some technologies. But, but it's interesting you point out when we talk about affordable housing and affordable living, uh, we often talk about the base price for a house, for an apartment, for whatever it is. And we usually don't take into account the cost – the costs associated with that property, whether it's your electrical bill, your gas bill, uh, your transportation bill, all these kinds of things associated with that property. And if we are able to reduce those costs, we are creating more affordability. Someone pointed out to me recently that in some ways, uh, I, think, I think she mentioned that New York City is actually the 12th most expensive market in the United States to live in. It's not the first. And it's not because the housing costs are through the roof, certainly in New York, but your your heating is is very reduced in great part because you're being heated by everyone who lives next to you. Um, you have that. Your transportation is, if you live in New York, is minimal because you're taking a subsidized subway to get to work or you're walking or something along those lines. And yet if you're living in, in Phoenix where the housing costs are up front less, but you're having to air condition that house to a to an incredible degree all year long, 
uh, your transportation costs are through the roof. There's no mass transit of any substance that's actually going to get you where you need to go. Um, so we, we aren't very good at that, but I think we need to be. And I think it, it, as you talk about energy and how we do it, and then combined with where are we? How are we working? How are we doing the things? How do we locate ourselves? That we can start saying, hey, wait a minute, I can save a lot of money if I'm not filling up the gas tank um, every week. Well, I think, you know, currently we have a very interesting confluence of events. Yeah. We have climate change, we have Russian aggression, and we have very high oil prices. Yeah. And all of those things are going to push people towards conservation and electrification in a huge way. You know, some people, it's just just about the money. And for some people, it can only just be about the money right. because they're scraping by. But, you know, if you can buy a bolt for $27,000 and you're paying, you know, a thousand bucks a month to get to work in your gas guzzling car, that's probably enough motivation to move you over. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to greatly accelerate, I Agreed. think, the, the adoption of the electric cars. So are you um, implying that at some point in the future when we're in this carbon-free uh, economy that we'll all kind of secretly thank uh, Mr. Putin for pushing us a little bit? Um, I, you know, I, I, it's interesting to think about that. If you think, uh, you, do you remember Jimmy Carter? Yes. So Jimmy Carter had an energy plan, um, and it was partly premised on, you know, avoiding the oil curse. Right. Uh, there aren't very many countries in the world that produce a lot of energy that are free and democratic. Uh, typically, they end up like Russia, uh, where the powers that be get control of the revenue flow. Uh, they're able to bribe their employees at least for a, a while uh, and keep them happy. And um, then it becomes terribly corrupt uh, mm -hmm. in this pattern that's you know, produced over and over and over again. Jimmy Carter saw that politically, geopolitically, uh, he wasn't dealing with climate change. Nobody was talking about climate right. change. He was talking about independence. We need to be free of other countries' oil. And we didn't know that we could produce enough to to supply our own needs. So right. he wanted, you know, technologies that produce energy without fossil fuels. Uh, and, you know, that didn't last very long. Oil collapsed. The price of oil in the late 80s was like eight bucks a barrel. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that takes away the incentive to go green. But now the current confluence of events, if you have a, you have a political consciousness, then you're going to want to avoid people like, you know, Chavez and Putin and Saudi Arabia and all the other oppressive regimes around. Uh, if that does, politics don't move you, then uh, the price could move you. Or if that doesn't move you, maybe the environment moves you. But anyway, we've got a But we're going of, to be moved. Yeah. Most people are going to be moved. <laughs> right. So I, th I think I'm sorry that people are in a lot of pain for the oil prices they're paying. Yeah. But it's going to be further motivation to create technological innovation that is going to change the world. And change is never without some discomfort, if not a lot of discomfort. So that's kind of where we are right now. That's it's right. There's always dislocation. People have to change. But, you know, the uh, Schlumberger drilling experts are working for quasi and geothermal drilling now. So there's a place for skills everywhere. Well, yeah. I mean, the oil companies are going to have something to do now. So that's, that's good. Uh, they have a future stake, which I think is exciting. All right. So you've talked about all the different things that you're excited about. What are you concerned that we might miss in this environment? Well, I have to say I'm, I'm astonished 
at the amount of investment that's going into places like Miami and Florida. Um, we don't invest in large buildings in Florida. We do have medical office buildings in Florida uh, that we built and own. Um, but they, they have no solution on the coast to sea level rise. They yeah. just don't have it. Uh, they might be able to create enough resilience against, uh, you know, massive hurricanes, but I don't know how they are ever going to end, how they're going to prevent uh, flooding of Miami, Miami Beach at any kind of a reasonable cost. So I'm I, I'm amazed at how much money is pouring into those locations. Mm -hmm. uh, and I keep asking myself, what am I missing? And I look at the stats and I look at the predictions and I say to myself, I just don't, you know, the risk here is huge that those cities are going to become inundated and useless. But uh, there seem to be a lot of people that don't believe that. So I, when you ask what, what are we missing, I think those people are missing. So either they're missing something or I'm missing well, something. Yeah, absolutely. But there does seem to be something off there, and we need to understand what the risk actually is and, and how that plays out. It's going to be... It's going to be interesting. Well, I, you know, I can't believe how much time has passed uh, in this conversation, and I'm sure I could probably talk to you for a very long time. There's a lot of interesting things here, and I would encourage anyone uh, to look out for that white paper uh, coming from uh, National Real Estate Advisors. They are, or they are just doing just some fantastic future thinking from the perspective of real estate and real estate investors, and I think it's valuable for everyone to look at. I want to thank uh, Jeffrey Connie from. Uh, the CEO of National Real Estate Investors for joining me here today uh, on the AFIRE podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Gunnar. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.